Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ball Film Podcast. Today, we have got Frank back, and we are going to talk about auteur cinema. But first, of course, we are going to have the news, and we are going to have Frank's Christmas film of choice. So, first of all, Frank, how have you been? Uh, very well, thank you. Brilliant. Um, what have you been up to since... I'm trying to remember how long it's been since we last spoke. It must be about a month, oh. just over oh, a month, yeah. possibly? Yeah, three or four weeks at least, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lots of work. I've had to do a lot of essays in the meantime. But yeah. um, in in recent days, I've been making as much use of the library as I can before the Christmas holidays and watching <laughs> lots of films. So that's been really fun. Which ones have you been watching? Well, I've got a bit arty just because they're in the library and so I want to make the most of it. Um, I've been watching Antonioni films. Uh, so uh, La Ventura and Le Clice are the two that I've watched recently. Yeah. Um, what have you thought of them? Really, really like La Ventura. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Beautifully, beautifully filmed. Um, really lovely, deep focus shots. Kind of like a more artsy Italian Citizen Kane in some parts, which I thought was really nice. Um, and it's very, very loose, yet quite enthralling. And I like Monica Vitti as an actress. I think she's really good. And uh, Lickleese, I thought, was, again, decent, but not quite up to the same level as La Ventura. I thought I preferred La Ventura. Um, so just uh, kind of um, harking back to our conversation the last time we spoke about um, the the BFI Top 100, uh, are these films that were on there as well? Or did you pick them out for that reason? Yeah, they're both on there. Um, I've been meaning to watch Antonioni for a while just because I like to look at the directors that everyone talks about and that are critically acclaimed. But those are the two Antonioni films that are on that BFI list. So it yeah. kills two birds with one stone. Brilliant. Um, did you think that they deserved their place there? Laventure, yes. Uh, Laventure is really high. It's like 21 on the list. It's a really high up uh, entry. I think it does challenge what cinema was at the time. And you can see its influence in lots of things. And I think it is a brilliant film. I think the whole idea of ranking films, I know we talked about it at length <laughs> last time. It's a bit silly in general, but if you're going to do it by any metric, I think films that genuinely challenge what cinema is and take it to new places deserve some credit and rec sort of recognition for that. And I think La Ventura really does do that. Lacleese does it again, just not as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, wonderful. Um, and uh, what about moving on to, I suppose, I can't really think of any like particularly artistic films that are also Christmas films. I think the only one you could poten potentially maybe argue for that comes to my mind is It's a Wonderful Life um because that's taking place like around christmas but i suppose uh, well, i suppose there are like artistic films um i'm fairly sure the white ribbon um by michael haneke definitely has some part of it because it's based around like a, a, a larger time frame there's at least some part of the film which i'm fairly sure is around christmas but i haven't seen that film in a while so i can't actually remember that um have you seen the white ribbon by any chance no, I haven't. I've seen Hidden by Hanukkah Cache, but I haven't seen White Ribbon. I've been meaning to, though. Yeah, um, Amour's the one of his that I, I know is, well, is kind of the most mainstream, I suppose, but my friend's been bugging me to, to watch that for ages. So I do need to watch it. But um, the White Ribbon's really, really good. And I, I yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. That's that's my artistic pick for you. I, I know when, when you come on the podcast, I've got to have my artistic picks lined up. When, we're not talking about Will Ferrell here anymore. I <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, any any sort of Christmas films that you particularly um, would recommend during December? Oh, tons. I mean, there's the classics like It's a Wonderful Life, which I love, you know, 
you, you can't watch that film and not be at least a little bit moved by it. It is a great film. Um, the article is indeed coming up about Die Hard, where I make my argument for that. But since I've written at length about that, I'd like to say something a bit different here. On the topic of artistic Christmas films, it's not really a Christmas film at all, but parts of um, 400 Blows are set at Christmas, which is interesting. It's a famous shot of him looking in at a Christmas tree through a shop window. Uh, I think the film that I choose as a Christmas film of choice, it's a pretty standard one, but I don't think a lot of people in Britain have seen it. Um, White Christmas with Bing Crosby. I've not actually seen that one. It's really, really, really fun. Mm -hmm. Really catchy musical from the 50s, American, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of, well, I suppose having now introduced this segment for December, I'm going to have to think of films to introduce each week. Um, I don't know, Christmas, Christmas in terms of films is never really something that I go kind of out of my way at the Christmas season to actually indulge in, to be honest with you. I'm not necessarily sure why that is. Um, it's It's not because I'm an absolute Grinch and I hate December. I do love December and Basically, I listened to nothing but music from Christmas albums yesterday, um, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, and, and that really set me into the spirit. And I've got two advent calendars, one which I bought in Holland and Barrett's and the other which my mum sent to me. So um, both of those are absolutely delightful as well. Um, I love I love all of the like festive things, but I've just never really intersected that much with my love of film. Um, I, I don't think it's, I don't know, maybe it's because a lot of Christmas films, they're kind of that fun for all the family and potentially as well, they're, they're a bit formulaic in places, right? Which is exactly why Die Hard is the best Christmas film, because it isn't formulaic and it is fun. <laughs> it's just not a Christmas film though, like... <laughs> what, I suppose, what, what do we count as a Christmas film, right? Do we count yeah. a film... Do we count a film set at Christmas in some part as a Christmas film? I think if a film is entirely set at Christmas, not just part of it, but the entire film is set at Christmas and it references Christmas constantly, both the iconography and symbols of Christmas and Christmas traditions in its dialogue, it is to some extent a Christmas film and should be accepted as such. But there's nothing in Die Hard that's really about discovering the spirit of Christmas. I don't know. I feel like... Well, I suppose this is the kind of thing with these films is it's the idea of because it's at the end of the year and I suppose you're just about to branch into New Year. It's always seen as this time where these characters can then kind of reflect on things. And I suppose the Christmas period usually for everyone is just a time where you're, you're with your family, right? And it is that time where you can slow down, um, you know, from your work or whatever you like to do anyway and just, I don't know, appreciate the family um appreciate the the myths from whichever religion that you choose to follow um and yeah just so well i suppose that's talking not necessarily about christmas because obviously that's limiting to christianity i mean um just winter festivals in general um yeah i think it's it's just kind of really that period of reflection and that's a lot that's what a lot of these films try and play off of Mm -hmm. at times so like in elf for example when you've got that guy who runs the, the the massive company who um i can't remember what can't remember what the company does um i know it's meant to be buddy's dad i can't remember his name but um that's that's kind of there in terms of um 
allowing that character to reflect and um, I don't know change his ways for the better and then you sprinkle in some Santa Claus somewhere and, and whatever apart from Arthur Christmas which I remember seeing in the cinema I, I can remember like the last bit of it maybe and that's about it um, uh, that wasn't as much kind of reflecting on these characters or well these characters reflecting on themselves um, so I don't know I just uh, I think they're, they're all kind of similar in these places I suppose Die Hard does kind of fit that in some ways um, but I do think that Die Hard being a Christmas film is kind of a joke that people talking about Die Hard uh, and talking about Christmas films do say, or, or they call it an alternative Christmas film, then, you know, it's just not a Christmas film, right? Uh, that's kind of my opinion with it. But I think I've talked uh, about Christmas films for a bit too much uh, length there. I mean, would you agree in terms of um, Christmas films and what they're like? I, I think that we shouldn't limit our acceptance of what a Christmas film is to a standard definition. I think if it's set at Christmas and in some way embraces the spirit of the season, it is a Christmas film. And I think Die Hard's full of reflection. John, it's the whole point of the film isn't about the violence. It's about family. The reason why the plot happens is because John McClane's trying to see his kids and wife again. The whole film is about being estranged from your family and bonding over some over a family crisis, essentially which really is the spirit of Christmas, I think. You know, It's about adversity and having to get through some really nasty drama in order to be with your family on Christmas Day. The film ends with the song Let It Snow as he drives away with his wife as it's snowing to his, to, um, on Christmas Day to see his kids again. To be honest, I think that... I, I talk about this at length in the article, um, but I think that's more Christmassy than anything in Love Actually, which I think is a cynical, horrible film, but awful, awful, awful people <laughs> I hate it so there you go i've not seen love actually to be honest with you um it's not lucky again it's i suppose it's just like rom-coms just i suppose it's one of those films you're meant to watch growing up and rom-coms were never really my genre growing up so i, I and i've never got back to correcting it since so a whole bunch of people see it as this beloved classic whereas um i don't so so i suppose that's there's nothing more really interesting to that story um, as there are with many stories about why I've not seen films. Like uh, I think sometimes people really overrate, especially when talking to me in like a bore film context, when they're like, Oh my God, you haven't seen this film. How could you fraud editor? Like, come on, man. There's, there's only a finite amount of time and I do have other facets to my personality. I promise. Um, but yeah. Um, so other than that, if we if we branch off into the news this week, do you want to explain the situation in terms of Mads Mikkelsen now being part of the Fantastic Beasts cast? Yes. Um, from what I understand, uh, Johnny Depp has been uh, dropped. He's been fired from the Fantastic Beasts series uh, because he lost his libel case against the Sun. Right. That's what's happened. And they've replaced him with Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, that's literally that's that's basically it. Isn't it? Um uh, Johnny Depp filmed one scene and got $10 million for, <laughs> for that one scene because he got paid the full salary for that film. Um, right. I really love Mads Mikkelsen as an actor, right? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the Fantastic Beasts franchise is a write-off. Um, I'll be honest with you. I've never seen any of them and I don't really want to see any of them. It's oh, not my don't. Opinion. Don't. There's just no point. I've seen the first one. First one was thoroughly disappointing. Um, I've not seen the second one because I don't care, but apparently that was even worse. Um, so in terms of that, like, 
I just I just don't see the point in these films still. Like they shouldn't have been made in the first place. Uh, but people are still throwing money at them. They're still making enough money that Disney wants to continue. But I don't know, like I don't know. Part of me questions um, the Harry Potter fandom, really, like whether whether there is really much of one or whether it's kind of almost this silent majority of Harry Potter fans that just go anyway because they hear it's a spinoff. Um, I know that on Warwick campus, the Warwick and um, Quidditch and Harry Potter society is rather popular um, as societies go, to be fair to it. So clearly there is some following for Harry Potter still but I'm not sure how much that necessarily translates into um, the rest of proceedings. Uh, what do you think? Uh, well, obviously Harry Potter has a you know massive international fandom worldwide. I think the real issue, to be honest, in the Harry Potter fandom recently has been what JK Rowling said about trans people. You know, that's what she said is awful and it's gone over terribly with people and very, very, very understandably. So I think that's been the real issue affecting uh, the Harry Potter sort of fandom recently and it's not great <laughs> this is true uh, yeah the, it, the whole franchise at the moment is just very problematic and it, it's really strange from JK Rowling especially with how she try and rewrite no not rewrite that's a bit of a Freudian slip I suppose but rewrite um, characters in the past to make sure they they were somewhat representative of what people are like today but it seemed to backfire completely um especially with with that now um so i suppose the the main issue is now um is well do well it's not necessarily like will mads mickelson be good in the role in my mind it's more will mads mickelson care about the role because <laughs> I'm not sure if you've seen him in Doctor Strange or if you've seen him in um, Rogue One, but he does carry himself there. Like he just really doesn't care. He's clearly there for a paycheck. Like he was just, he was just out of doing Hannibal on TV. And it's like, oh, let's, uh, let's make sure everyone knows that I still exist, right? And he just went and did those films. I'm very excited to see him in Thomas Vinterberg's new film, Another Round, because I absolutely adore um, I, um, adores the wrong word, um, but I think that um, The Hunt is a really good film, um, obviously directed by Vintenberg, starring Mads Mikkelsen, and um, it's the same writer as Another Round as well, and that film won the London um, uh, Film Festival's um, top prize, so that's, uh, so I'm genuinely really excited for that. Out of any film coming out at the moment, I think that's probably the one I say is my most anticipated yeah, yeah. Uh, look come on i've got to have something kind of rogue <laughs> as film editor right like look and especially with you on frank it's got to be something kind of artistic um have, have you seen festin by vinterberg no i've not actually i've been meaning to um is that uh during his dogma 95 days or after his dogma 95 days it very much is i think it's sort of the defining dogma 95 film yeah um, I want to watch Pusher um, as well, which is Nicholas Bending Refn in Dogma 95 Days, because according to Mads Mikkelsen, in his words, Vindenberg and uh, Von Trier will never admit it, but they kind of used uh, Pusher as their kind of mold for Dogma 95. And, and then just kind of, and then, and then just went with it from there, which I find really funny as a story, especially as like Mads works with all these people. Um, 
but that I suppose is that's just kind of the strong, the very strong Danish cohort when it comes to um, 21st century, well, late 90s and then 21st century cinema. Embarrassingly, I've never seen any of Lars von Trier's films. Oh, you've got I, to. Yeah, the thing is, I know, I know. <laughs> right, the thing is, is I know that they're quite emotionally powerful. So They are I, devastating films. Exactly, that's why I don't really want to watch them. <laughs> I'll tell you this, right? Um, it was, I think it was about the third or fourth week of my first year at uni. And I went to the Warwick Library and I found a copy of Breaking the Waves by Vondria. I was in floods watching that film and I felt so lonely and upset watching oh my it. God. But it's brilliant. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. Yeah. And I, you can say that about a lot of Vondria. Melancholia and Dancer in the Dark as well are just absolute incredible works of cinema. Dancer in the Dark is the one I've known about for time, and um, Max, who who's been on the podcast a couple of times, has recommended it to me. And I just hear about um, how unbelievably devastating it is, and it's just like I, I I just don't need that in my life, especially with how the pandemic's currently looking. Right? I suppose I suppose if I wanted to watch a film just to be like, hey James, don't worry, it could be worse. Then then that's really the one to go for. But um, yeah. Uh, that's so um, moving on from from that tangent right so like Mads Mikkelsen like he's still doing these hopefully really good um, artistic works I mean I have to still say hopefully for another round I hope it wasn't fraudulent in his victory in the London Film Festival but he's he's also like I'm was I surprised that he was cast not particularly um of course, he's he's made his foray into video games as well with Death Stranding, right? Um, I'm I'm not sure how much of a gamer you are. Um, have you seen anything from his performance in Death Stranding? No, but I like Kojima. I like the Metal Gear Solid games, but I I haven't played Death Stranding and I haven't seen any footage from it. I'm afraid. Um, yeah, so I I played it around a mate's house basically, and um, I I really loved his performance. He was fantastic in it. Um, uh, and I, I definitely recommend playing it at some point. It's quite divisive in terms of how good it is as a game, but I personally was a massive fan of it. Um, and I think for you as a fan of Kojima and anyone listening as a fan of Kojima, um, they, they will also hopefully um, manage to enjoy it or find some enjoyment in places from it as well. Uh, effectively, um, well, this, this seems like... I, I, I suppose I was surprised by the news because... Maybe it's because of the heuristic that Mads Mikkelsen is not American or English, so I just didn't think that he'd be in the conversation for Grindelwald. It might be something as, as simple as that. Um, uh, but yes, um, do will it make me watch the films? No. Will I watch the trailer just to see what Mads Mikkelsen looks like as Grindelwald and maybe hear him say a few lines as Grindelwald? Yes. But that's pretty much it in terms of what it makes me think. Um, I hope Mads Mikkelsen is getting paid along the same lines as Johnny Depp was, to be honest, because maybe it means that he'll have enough money that he'll realise I can just do artistic films for the rest of my life on however little money that um, that I was about to say Nicholas Roeg there, but obviously he's dead, that, that Nicholas Vending Refn... Um, uh Lars von Trier and Thomas Vindenberg you know want to give me and and I'll be fine like this is kind of my best case scenario from this and maybe it attracts more people to those films because he's really good in them um because he's really good in Fantastic Beasts even and then they they want to watch his other work right um 
I suppose the first franchise film Mads did was was Casino Royale, obviously, um, and that yeah. kind of gets forgotten because it was it was basically when he was starting out. But um, yeah, it's I mean Le Chiffre is my favourite Bond villain to be honest with you, and um, yeah, I remember doing like further maths at A level, like part of the choice, part of the reason I made that choice was like I want to be as good at poker as Le Chiffre, and I need the statistics involved in maths to, uh, to to try that, which which actually just wasn't the case. But now I'm here with a maths degree, I suppose, where um, where <laughs> we can't go back now, guys. Um, <laughs> Well, Le Chiffre, I think, is actually French for the numbers, isn't it? As a it phrase. is. It is, yeah. 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 That's very much in it. I absolutely love Casino Royale. That's, along with On a Majesty's Secret Service, that's probably my favourite Bond film. Um, it's I think definitely my favourite, yeah. Definitely. So, so good. Um, I rewatched it a few weeks ago, yeah, when I was in self-isolation. Yeah, it's it, like, it's, the action in it's really, really good. Um, oh, the yeah, airport, opening- airport scene is especially, I think. The, op- the air- airport scene's incredible. The opening scene in black and white with the bathroom fight where he's bashing the guy's head in in the cubicles, that's incredible. And on top of that, uh, Mads Mikkelsen's amazing. I think Eva Green has to go down as the best woman in a Bond film ever. She's just incredible in that. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, she's absolutely brilliant in that film as well. And I, I, I like the kind of character arc that James Bond has to have in this one and the, um, the shake up to the formula in many places. So what do you think, like, I suppose you've never seen any Fantastic Beasts film. Um, Mads Mikkelsen being someone who's just, he's kind of a franchise actor, but not really, right? Like Johnny Depp, you see that and you can't, well, you see him at the end of Fantastic Beasts cameoing and you're like, what the hell? Um, what are you doing here? But then Mads Mikkelsen, I think he's known for like his his more highbrow work, shall we say. So what was your kind of reaction to the news? Does it make you any more interested in Fantastic Beasts or do you just kind of largely agree with what I said about it? I'll be honest with you. I basically agree with what you said. I saw Rogue One when that came out and I was shocked to see Mads Mikkelsen in it because I associated him with more highbrow stuff as well. But I think once you've accepted that he's in Rogue One, it's like, well, I guess he can be in basically any big franchise then. Um, Fantastic Beasts doesn't really interest me. uh, So I'm not going to see it either way. But I thought that what you said about watching the trailer is pretty funny because I'll probably do the exact same thing. Well, there we have it. Listeners at home, if you have an opinion, um, I mean, if you if you really want to tweet more film about it, then I'm, I'm not going to stop you. But I can't imagine. I don't think anything that the audience is going to say is really going to make me change my mind. But I suppose knowing what our audience is like, there may well be some very insightful um, comments that are actually made about that. But then moving on to our actual topic of the day, Alter Cinema. Now, Frank, um, this was this was your topic that you wanted to come out, come on and talk about again. Um, people, for, for anyone listening at home, uh, I know I always say this at the end of the podcast, but maybe you don't make it. Um, for, for those who are writers for The Bore and whatever, um, uh, if you just you literally just have to message me to get on the podcast um i i know some i suppose because of the fact that it's a podcast and not many people do it it just seems like it's more of an elusive thing than writing an article but it's it's really not you you just you just ask me and then you get on like it's it's as simple as that to be honest so frank what made you want to talk about this topic in particular um and if you could just give us a general introduction, um, that would be absolutely marvellous. Wonderful. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Auteur Film 
because I think it's a really interesting idea. I think it covers basically the entire history of cinema. And it's a really good way to talk about a broad variety of directors and what makes them so enigmatic and special and unique uh, in the history of cinema. If I may just say what auteur theory is, uh, I have the definition written down here. Auteur theory is the idea that an artist, usually a film director, who applies a highly centralized and subjective control to many aspects of a collaborative creative work, uh, in other words, uh, a person who is equivalent to an author of a novel or play. So it's basically saying that a film director is to a film what an author is to a novel, right? So this is auteur theory. The idea is that you have films with uh, very dominant directors like say Hitchcock or uh, Howard Hawks was someone who's talked about in these terms in the early days of auteur theory. John Ford is another one. Um, uh, the personality of the director is key. The idea is that the director is this shaping force in the film which was a big idea at the time. Auteur theory had been talked about a bit in the 30s and 40s, but it wasn't called that then. But it was really popularized by Cahiers du Cinema, which is a sort of French publication that looks at films. And the idea was uh, these French these French critics like Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, who became directors, uh, looked at this whole variety, this assortment of films that had come up from the 50s. And this is when the studio system was absolutely dominant. So film was massively collaborative. You had directors, writers, producers, actors, all of these people with massive input into the uh, process of making a film. But these critics, these French critics looked at Hitchcock films and Ford films and Howard Hawks films and Orson Welles films and said, now these films are all distinctive. You can tell the personality of the director is the key force in shaping these films. And so auteur theory actually supports the idea that a director should be the principal force in shaping a film. They think that makes a film better. So that's auteur theory. Wonderful. Um, thank you for the very nice abstract there. That was um, historical information that I didn't actually know. Um, what, what do you think are necessarily the benefits of having um, an, an auteur there? Uh, I understand that my pronunciation of it is just going to be absolutely diabolical, but we're just going to have to roll with it. Um, what do you think is kind of the advantage of auteur theory um, versus uh, the studio system? And what do you think got um, Truffaut and Godard specifically so incensed and so inspired uh, by these things? Um, I suppose design by committee is something that I'm not a fan of, but uh, I, I, but for people at home who aren't necessarily, um, who don't necessarily read into films as much as you or I do, could you give them kind of this flavor of what the advantages of uh, auteur cinema versus uh, the more kind of studio design and design by committee instead? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in the studio system of America, this was prevalent in golden age Hollywood. So this is just before World War II and a little bit just after. They pumped out hundreds of films a year, hundreds of Westerns, musicals, melodramas, screwball comedies, just film after film after film after film. Most of those have been forgotten to history, these films. They're not films we talk about. If you look at the 40s and 50s uh, and 30s, the films we talk about are by these forceful directors. So if you look at screwball comedies, the, the, the most loved examples are films like His Girl Friday, Bringing Up Baby, and uh, I'm not sure if you can call The Philadelphia Story a screwball comedy. So let's say The Lady Eve, which is Preston Sturgis. All of these films are by forceful directors. So Howard Hawks did Bringing Up Baby and uh, the other film I mentioned, His Girl Friday, and Preston Sturgis made The Lady Eve. These are the great films of that era. And it can be said the same for the 50s. So if you think of the number of 
sort of B-movies and pulpy suspense thrillers in the 50s that are just forgotten now. They're the kind of films that play on Talking Pictures TV on a Sunday afternoon. It might be good for a giggle, but you don't really think, oh, great cinema. Whereas the second North by Northwest starts, you know you're in for an amazing film experience because Hitchcock is just that much of a perfectionist and an artist in what he did. Um, so I think there is a lot of value to be had in the idea that directors with these forceful preoccupations on certain themes and this strong idea of control and perfection really can make great cinema. After I read a bit about auteur theory, I reflected on my own favorite films and I thought most of my favorite films aren't studio releases um, without directorial uh, control. Um, so if, if you think of a film like say, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Now, hardcore Marvel fans might know who directed that film. I haven't got a clue who directed that film because the director's not really important there. It's about Marvel as a franchise. Whereas if I think of my own personal favorite films, it's stuff like Persona by Ingmar Bergman, Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, North by Northwest, as I mentioned by Hitchcock. Those are all some of my very favorite films. And those are films where the directors have just absolutely put a stamp on the film. Kubrick, you know, Kubrick's one of my favorite directors ever you know a Kubrick film the second it begins. I said this on the last podcast, just because his force as a director is so powerful that his films last and they're still loved now because there's nothing else like them. So I think there is a lot to be said for auteur theory. Yeah, um, I suppose as well, just kind of as a clarification thing for people listening at home, um, could you give an example of where you feel like um, you've seen a film or a signature that a specific director has um, that you'd like to point out just um, as this example of um, what you're saying in terms of you can tell the personality of a director's there. So if there are any kind of signatures you can think of that directors have anything like really explicitly that makes you realize it is a film from that director, then that would be wonderful if you could divulge into that. Oh, absolutely. I'll I'll talk about Kubrick and Hitchcock because they're two of my very favorite directors. You know a Kubrick film from the moment it begins because he uses wide angle lens. Uh, tracking shots are really, really common. Usually there's a thing called the Kubrick stare, which some of the listeners might know about, which is, um, I'll do an impression of, for, of it uh, for you now, James. It's sort of the head down, eyes up, with a sort of menacing glare like that. Jack Nicholson often does it in The Shining to quite spooky effect. Um, so those are some things you might associate with the Kubrick film that are technical that you see in front of you. I think with Hitchcock, it's more thematic. Uh, so if you watch a Hitchcock film, usually you have the man wrongfully suspected of a crime. So it's the innocent man suspected of a crime he didn't commit. You have the idea of the Hitchcock woman, often called the Hitchcock blonde. So it's usually this woman who is innocent, um, uh, quite dignified and respectable, but by the end of the film, she's just destroyed by what she's gone through. Uh, so a good example would be Psycho, where I'm afraid the Hitchcock blonde is literally destroyed and The Birds, uh, where Tippi Hedren's character is just catatonic by the end of it. Um, some other thematic things that you might associate with Hitchcock would be the role of mothers in his film, which is interesting. Hitchcock had a bit of a, bit of a strange relationship with his mom. And if you watch Psycho, that, <laughs> the themes of that certainly come across. Um, North by Northwest as well, Cary Grant's mother is randomly quite a main character in the first 30 minutes of that film, for not too much reason. Um, other things you might associate with Hitchcock, bathrooms and trains seem to come up quite a lot. Uh, Psycho had the first shot of a flushing toilet <laughs> in a mainstream film. Um, and if you think of trains in Hitchcock films, they're all over. I mean, The Lady Vanishes is entirely set on a train for the most part. The bit at the beginning isn't, but the most part of it is. Strangers on a train, right? North by Northwest, there's lots of stuff with trains. Um, 
So there you go. There's those little thematic touches that resonate through his films and uh, technical decisions that resonate through his films. Ooh, if I can add one more thing, because I've forgotten about this. I think a lot of the reason why people think Vertigo is the best Hitchcock film is because it's just the culmination of all those themes. And it's a very personal film for Hitchcock in that throughout his life, and unfortunately there's some pretty dodgy stuff that Hitchcock did, he basically tried to mold and shape the women he worked with to create a certain image. And Vertigo is about a man narcissistically shaping a woman into the image of a woman that he wants her to be. So it seems quite a personal film from Hitchcock. Yeah, um, I suppose the, the one question I want to ask after that is where do you think um, this auteurism ends and where do you think repetition begins? Because I think one of the common criticisms that can be leveled at Hitchcock is just how repetitive his films can be. So um, what would you say kind of, uh, well, yeah, where would you say the line is? Um, I suppose with Hitchcock specifically, um, uh, it might be easier for you to pinpoint there, but um, for, for auteurism in general, it might be a bit harder to answer, but I'd love to see you at least give it a try. That is a brilliant question. And that is an objection people do raise against Hitchcock, the idea that it's always a suspense thriller. There's usually the, you know, the wrongfully suspected man, these elements just repeat and repeat. I think what distinguishes that from dull repetition is just the new twist you put on in it in each film. So uh, on the surface level, both North by Northwest and let's say uh, Rear Window, uh, for example, are both films about, um, oh, there's, 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 oh, no, I'll think of a better example. Vertigo and Rear Window, that's a better example. Vertigo and Rear Window are both films about male obsession with women. There's an idea of, um, there's a sort of sexual undercurrent of obsession going through both of those films. Uh, both of them star Jimmy Stewart as a sort of slightly miserly character who a woman is in love with, but he seems to just sort of reject her because he's a sort of perfectionist and a bit narcissistic. So I guess in a way you could say those films are thematically very similar, but the plots are totally different. You know, both revolve around murders, both are suspenseful, both have these themes, but Rear Window is entirely in one room apart from a very short scene at the end, whereas Vertigo is this sort of sprawling semi-epic film that explores San Francisco um, in a really interesting way. So in that rather long answer to your question, I suppose I'd say that what separates uh, auteurism from repetition is the new spin you put on these themes. You've got to put them in a different context and try and make them resonate in a different way with different plot elements. There you go. Um, I'm wondering how much I agree with you, to be honest, because I feel like because of how thematics are kind of less easy for people to spot out than actual plot events, I wonder how much more of an easier time these films get for that fact, because Marvel films are obviously called repetitive all the time. They're different films, but the events are largely the same. It's it's usually some orange origin story, some villain wants to destroy something and he's got to be stopped, right? And and then I suppose the tone of it's all the same as well. It's like, you know, you watch one, you've watched all of them. Um, whereas, so, so that I think both of us can agree is quite repetitive um, so as to give that kind of studio system counterpart. But when you're exploring these themes, um, you know, these Marvel films in terms of events always have these new spins, right? Um, in terms of where they're set, in terms of the characters and their 
very slightly varying personalities right so what do you think really i suppose again this is just kind of throwing out some sort of devil's advocate um speech at you i suppose um do you think that maybe that might be the case instead or what do you think in terms of how like how do you spin a theme to to kind of to make it feel new again brilliant question uh, I suppose the theme itself stays the same. The theme doesn't change. I think it's the context of the theme. So as you said, yes, Marvel films are repetitive. I'm not the biggest fan of Marvel films. If someone's watching them, I'll watch it along. I'll probably have a decent enough time. But I think what makes uh, the use of themes again and again in auteur films so special uh, and avoiding repetition is that the director has to really stamp it out differently. So a Marvel film, as you say, person finds a some sort of glowy orby stone thing that leads them on a quest to become a superhero that maybe they're a bit gawky or nerdy and they develop into a hero or whatever those films are pretty standard i mentioned rear window because it's entirely set in one room apart from one short scene so a marvel film if a marvel film did something like that superhero film set in one room that would be really interesting i'd love to see it (laughs) i'd love to see if they can pull it off whereas vertigo isn't just set across a city. It's got bizarre dream sequences in it. You know, it's got that wonderful, wonderful sequence where Jimmy Stewart is having that nightmare where his face is projected onto a red screen and he sees cutouts of people falling from buildings. It innovates technically with its direction with the wonderful vertigo shot, the dolly shot where it seems objects are both moving away uh, from you and coming towards you at the same time, which has been used so much since. And the tone of it is completely different. Rear Window is a really suspenseful film. It's it's hot and it's stuffy and it's cramped and claustrophobic, whereas Vertigo is very, very sort of ethereal and dreamlike. So I think the tone is completely different because of that different context and the directorial style is different and the setting is different. So it's not just, oh, well, let's take this character into this different location. Let's change up that. Let's change a couple of names here and there. It's the entire tone and shape of the film that's completely different. So I think though Hitchcock does have these themes he returns to again and again, North by Northwest, uh, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Psycho, Vertigo, those films feel nothing like each other really in terms of films. It would be really hard to confuse them. Whereas I think Captain America, The Winter Soldier could quite easily get confused with say Doctor Strange or something. You might not know which one you're watching if you tune in. Whereas with Hitchcock, there's such a different stamp on each film. For Psycho, for example, he used a TV film crew to make a big, big film. He wanted it to feel low budget and cheap and intimate because that's the type of film it is it's a bit grubby it's a bit nasty so he wanted it filmed completely differently it feels really different as a film even though it has those same thematic um, occupations that the rest of his films do so i think that's the difference yeah um that was a really good answer thank you for that um uh when it comes to doing something like that stylistically in terms of with having a tv crew or something like that um, obviously, a very common accusation for auteur films to have, if someone wants to say that they're not that good, is to call them style over substance. Um, it's it's mainly fancy camera work or fancy lighting and all of these other things, but it's not really saying much thematically, which, to be honest with you, um, I think a lot of Hitchcock films at some points do kind of fall for the trap of not really saying that much thematically. Um, Hitchcock made some wonderful suspense thrillers and yeah if you watch them as suspense thrillers yeah they're they're wonderful but I think when you're watching them in terms of themes Vertigo really stands out 
rope stands out because he didn't write it it was it was it was a play that already just adapted it psycho mm, psycho stands out a bit less but it's still got its moments and then other films of his such as rear window just don't seem to have as much going on thematically whereas like you know the style's all kind of there in terms of uh keeping him in one room and having a tv crew to do psycho and other things like that so would you say that style over substance i think the first question to ask is do you think it's a valid criticism for the fact that for some people um style may well be the same as substance right it's you kind of putting your stamp on it and giving people something interesting to look at that they've potentially most likely hopefully not seen before so um do you think style over substance is an actual valid criticism that's a brilliant question style over substance i used to be very much in the camp of all oh, these films are style over substance they're boring what's going on in them i'm i'm, I'm uninterested like and if i'd watched an antonioni film maybe five years ago i'd been bored out of my mind i couldn't wait for it to end it's the same with the goddard films i like like Le Mepri and breathless i'd have gone these are just annoying films but now i look at the style and i think that's really saying something different you focus on the beauty of the image and the detail of the image because it's different from anything else you've seen once you've seen tons of films, this year I must have seen hundreds of films, especially during lockdown when I just was watching like three films a day. Once, if you see a film that really does something stylistically different, it stands out to you in a way that very few other films do. So I think that style can be substance. If it's done well, that's the thing. If it's just vague and shallow and hollow and annoying, like some Godard films, like Histoire du Cinema and two or three things I know about her, which I think are just painful. Um, then it's not good. But I think if you're doing something relevant to the themes of the film and relevant to the story and the characters that is really stylistically interesting, it just gives the film that much more flavour. And to talk about Hitchcock and style, I think that Hitchcock's films are massively resonant. There's a reason that there's this ginormous body of academic texts on the films. North by Northwest, for example, um, that might just seem like an entertainment thriller. It's my favourite Hitchcock film. Um, you just think, oh, wrongfully suspected man, he's on a train. Oh, look, he's getting chased by a plane. He's on Mount Rushmore. Oh, that was fun. But that film is so deeply embedded in the social context that it was made in, in a quite a subtle way. That film is about the Cold War. The whole plot of that film, and I'm sorry that I have to give it away to say it, but it is a 50-year-old film at least, so I'm almost 70 years old now. So I feel I can give it away. Um, uh, the whole plot of that film is that Cary Grant is thought to be a secret agent called George Kaplan, who's an American agent infiltrating a criminal gang. Now, Cary, Grant, Cary Grant's character, Roger Thornhill, is not George Kaplan. And he thinks, well, why am I being confused with George Kaplan? Do I look like him? And he finds out eventually that George Kaplan doesn't exist. He's just an agent on paper. Uh, the, the gov a government agency that's uh, unnamed in the film has made this fake agent who only exists on paperwork to throw the criminals off the trail. It's a sort of government double bluff. But the unthinking Kafkaesque bureaucracy of the system that's trying to get rid of criminals who are selling Cold War secrets to the Soviets completely destroys this individual man's life. He's, he's, you know, he's thrown in jail, he's persecuted, he's arrested, he's tortured, he's, people are trying to kill him. And it's because of this unthinking system that pits everything in the world against this one man who just wants to restore some sense of rationality and sense to the world and tell people who he is. I think there's deep, deep thematic resonance in that film. There's a wonderful scene, wonderful, wonderful scene where Cary Grant 
is facing uh, a woman that he's in love with. I won't ruin too much of the plot between them because it's really interesting. But they're separated by these tall trees in between them. It's brilliant use of mise-en-scene. Um, there's this idea of an obstacle between them that they can't get past. And he's talking with the government handler who's devised this plan. And he says, um, if you're using dirty tricks like this, you might want to start thinking about losing, losing the Cold War, not winning it. The government handler says, yeah, we're doing that already. So it's this film that might seem on a surface level just to be a typical suspense thriller and a bit of entertainment and fluff that really is forged in the crucible of its time. It's a Cold War thriller, it's a spy thriller, and it's a film about a state that doesn't care about the individual, which is obviously a massively resonant theme in American popular culture and life. So I think there's so much more that can be read into that film and so much subtext that elevates it from being an entertainment thriller to a truly great work of cinema. I think it's really interesting that you choose a film that's so specifically um, ingrained into the Cold War attitude at the time, because I think as um, in terms of having themes that are so of its time, do you think there's somewhat of a risk that if that then it becomes dated as people um, appreciate the history of it less and less? Literally everything is dated. That's, I honestly believe that. Everything in the world was made in a certain context in a certain time. The best film ever made apparently is Citizen Kane, right? That was made in 1941. There's a lot of stuff that that film does that we might go, whatever, it's dated now. But the point is that it's such a brilliant capsule of its time and the spirit of its age. And I think that's what film is ultimately. It's, a, it's not just entertainment, it's social history embedded in film. I don't think you can ever really separate a film from its social context. If something is dated in a bad way, I take that to mean it's really hammy or it's shot really poorly. So if you, if you watch a lot of BBC TV from the 70s, it just looks cheap and tacky and awful. That's dated because it looks bad and the acting isn't very good. If something's dated in that it deals with the resonant themes of its time, I think that's a really good thing because I think you should document the themes of your time in film. Parasite in 30 years time, people are going to go, oh, it's really dated. That's such a 2019 film. But that's great because it preserves social history in cinema. And I think that's a really important thing to do. So I think if you use dated to complain about films embodying the zeitgeist of their time, I'm not on board with that at all. I think that's a thing film should do. Um, I think that's a really good kind of takedown of the, um, well, of basically lazily calling something dated um thank you very much for that um i i do kind of take exception to the comment about 70s bbc television though because i do love a good bit of tom baker uh and his doctor who i'm the vice president of the doctor who society oh wow Wonderful. i am obsessed with i am obsessed with doctor who and i love it but it is cheap Wonderful. and funny um, <laughs> I, I love um, the arc in space in that episode when um, when he's, I can't remember the name of the character, but he's turning into Orwiran and he just raises his hand out his pocket and you can see very clearly that it's just bubble wrap with, with yeah. green paint on it. I mean, okay, if we talk, okay, now, now we've got into this, the cliffhanger yeah. to the mind rubber part one, Patrick Troughton, genius. The direction in that is by a man named David Maloney and it's gorgeous. It's such a weird, surreal thing to put in a kid's TV show. I love it so much. Yet later on in that story, you have a bit where a character is standing on top of a tower and looking across at a series of alphabet towers in this like fake forest. And it's so clearly just someone scrolling on a bit of paper. It's, it's, it's hilarious. It's really dated in that it's not made very well, but that adds to the charm of it, right? So there's a certain value in that too, <laughs> you know, 
that uh, that that alphabet forest thing it might not be someone on paper it's a or it's a really bad model but it it's fun so um, dated can be charming remind me what the cliffhanger of the first mind robber episode is now because i've seen that episode a couple of times the, the mind robber part one is just incredible i know that this is a film podcast but if i could talk about doctor who as an example of excellent direction that's one i'd mention the mind robber part one sees our characters in a void. It's a world beyond time and space. Um, and they're menaced by robots in this open white void. And the episode ends with the TARDIS literally blowing apart in this black void of space. And the final shot you get is Jamie and Zoe clinging to the TARDIS console as it spins into the void and Patrick Troughton suspended in space, unable to understand where he is and who he is. And it's incredible. It's on YouTube, please watch it. It's so good. I'll have to rewatch it after this. Yeah, wonderful. Anyway, getting back on topic with auto <laughs> cinema before we jump down this rabbit hole for a bit too long. Um, so I suppose you've you've mentioned uh, Hitch. Well, we've talked basically a lot about Hitchcock, kind of as this auto example. Um, could you name a few kind of modern examples? Um, and maybe also explain whether you think auto cinema has grown or um, died in some places, uh, or well, withered, I suppose is the better word to use there, um, because of studio systems like the Marvel system taking over and naming some kind of modern authors just so people get a, kind of get an idea of some people like working today still. Um, I suppose um, Vinterberg and Reffen and Von Trier, who we named earlier, would certainly come into that category in my mind but um you know we'll we'll get a bit more varied than just the danish flavor well i'll, I'll be honest with you i was i was thinking about this exact question last night if we do have uh, auteurs now there are tons in the 70s and 50s and 60s and so on i think if there is an auteur today i know that he's stopped making films but he's still very much a force in popular culture it's got to be david lynch if you watch a david lynch film it's his film there can be any kind of actor in it any kind of writer any kind of producer you know a david lynch film because they're so utterly bizarre inland empire is one of the best cinematic experiences i've ever had because it's unlike anything else you'll ever see so i think david lynch is a great example um paul thomas anderson who i absolutely adore i think he's an incredible director he's he Im he imposes such a spirit and a force into his films that you know they're his and they are some of the definitive films of recent cinema, There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, the incredible works. I'm so going to briefly interrupt here because oh, I do, do not, I don't think I understand the hype behind Paul Thomas Anderson. I really like There Will Be Blood, but apart from that, his other films I've seen, which I think is Phantom Thread and uh, and Boogie Nights, I, I don't get the hype behind. I remember being in the cinema for Phantom Thread and at the ending where it turns out she's just been point well he works out that she's been poisoning him with the mushrooms or he's already worked it out and he just doesn't care i remember looking at my brother and just being like why are these mushrooms so central to the bloody plot and like just in terms of in just facial expression of turning to him being like really um and boogie nights as well is just a glorified goodfellas and i think I think I think that's really this is one I will die on this hill with you now. I think Boogie Nights is really dated in terms of now that I think I think sex works just so much more accepted now. 
um, that you watch it and it's literally just shock factor of I'm doing Goodfellas, but it's about the porn industry. That's in my mind, that's pretty much all that film is. Um, I suppose I can't remember the name of the actor who, who plays the porn director or pr producer even. He's uh, fine. Uh, he's, he's very good. But apart from that, I feel like everyone else in their performance is just kind of fine. Apart from maybe um, Julian Moore as well is very good. But apart from those two, everyone else is just kind of okay. And that's pretty much it. And I think it's just so it lacks focus uh, so much in places. And I, I, I can't say that I cared so much for the family. And I think the shock factor is just gone that was once there. Um, yeah, so if you could possibly inform me as to what the hype is there, then then please, because I'm kind of at a loss at this point. I'll agree with you. Boogie Nights is very much a Scorsese film directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. That's the style of it. That's what it's going for. You can even see it in the, the opening tracking shot. It's very similar to the Copacabana tracking shot in Goodfellas. It's a very similar film stylistically to Goodfellas. Um, I will say that uh, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that the Burt Reynolds performance and the Julianne Moore performances are great because they are. They're brilliant brilliant performances i'd add to that um william h macy is really good in that film he's just utterly humiliated uh, his wife is a porn actress and he's just he's just humiliated by it he's very good philip seymour hoffman in that film has an amazing part he's it's a it's a small part but there's a bit where he is he confesses his love to mark Wahlberg's character and mark Wahlberg rejects him because uh, he he's not gay um and philip seymour hoffman's character is and then Philip Seymour Hoffman, there's no reason for it to be in the film, but there's a shot of Philip Seymour Hoffman collapsing onto the hood of a car crying. And it's so moving. You don't expect it to happen at all, but it's a really moving shot. I really like that. I'll agree. It's not one of Paul Thomas Anderson's very best films. It is a film of its time in, in that sense of being dated because it's very heavily Scorsese influenced. And it's not um, a film that's as recognizably his as his later films. I think that a lot of the appeal of Phantom Thread, which you were talking about, is what it draws on. So there's a lot of Hitchcock in Phantom Thread. Uh, if you look at the scenes where he's taking Vicky Cripps' character to the house, he's dressing her up, he's changing her style, what she looks like, he's shaping her and fashioning her into an ideal woman. That's very Vertigo. I really feel like he watched a bit of Vertigo uh, before making those scenes. And the scenes with the uh, the mushrooms and the poisoning, That's there's a long tradition of sort of captive spouse cinema, which was very popular in the 40s. Films like Gaslight and Suspicion, Suspicion being, of course, a Hitchcock film, where there's this idea of the domineering husband poisoning his wife to control her, and then the wife eventually escapes and makes it out. And I think that Paul Tom Sanderson is being, doing a bit of a gender subversion of that, which I think, I think that appealed to a lot of critics because it's riffing on a an established trend in cinema and a, an old trend that maybe they might have remembered from their childhood watching films. I agree, it's not one of my favorites either, Phantom Thread. I might need to rewatch it, but I think those themes are what makes a lot of people love it. And it looks incredible because he's such a technically gifted director. Magnolia is my favorite. Um, and if I had to pick a favorite moment in the history of film, of all the films I've seen, the scene in Magnolia where all of the separate characters in different locations sing the Amy Mann song, Wise Up, it's my favourite moment in any film. I think that's just gorgeous. I cry every time I watch that. I'm not ashamed to admit it because I just love it. Um, that is a film that's an ensemble film. So it's inspired by Robert Altman's films like Shortcuts and The Player and Nashville. But it's a drama 
And it's a powerful, sad drama that isn't afraid to deal with topics like uh, drug abuse and, and child abuse is a theme in it as well. Um, it's a it's a film that deals with relationships between parents and children in a very, very powerful way. Every relationship in the film is somehow affected by what their parents at some point did to them. And it's amazingly emotionally powerful, that film. Tom Cruise gives, I would say, his best performance in it. There's a scene where he, ha he has to very convincingly cry and break down, much like Philip Seymour Hoffman has to in Boogie Nights. And it's so powerful. You can't tell you, tear your eyes off it. And that film really opened my eyes to the possibilities of ensemble films and big dramas that deal with really tough issues, but in a, quite a, it's the wrong word to use, I suppose, but it's a very fast paced film. So it is in a sense thrilling, but obviously the, the way it deals with those themes is very, very dramatically strong uh, and non-exploitative. Um, so I think Paul Thomas Anderson draws upon a rich history of cinema, but does it in his own inimical way. Um, and that's why I love his films. Yep. Wonderful. Uh, that's sadly all we have time for. I mean, we could talk a lot more about how much um, being an auteur potentially as well, kind of, well, how, how much can Paul Thomas Anderson really be an auteur when he's drawing from other people's films? But um, that's a conversation that sadly has to be left <laughs> for another day. Um, Frank, again, uh, if you want to drop any of your social medias, um, that would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, tell people what projects you've got going on and what people should be looking out for if they want to see your work. Um, I have very few projects going on. If you want to see me rant politically a lot, uh, I have a Twitter, Count Frankula Evans, because I refuse to change it from Halloween. I enjoy the Halloween naming system. Um, and yeah, check me out on the board. I've written some articles if you want to read them for some reason. Um, just look up my name on the board and you can find them. I do have a letterbox, but I don't use it very often. So that's about it. Wonderful. Um, thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, it was lovely. Thank you. As ever. Thank you so much. Um, so for anyone who uh, wants to catch up with our stuff, um, we are at The Boar Film on Instagram, at Boar Film on Twitter, and The Boar Film on Facebook. Uh, if you want to see any of my stuff on Twitter, then at J underscore Palmer 2 is the place to go. Um, and yeah, that's everything for this week. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.